Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Bankcast for you to start the week, maybe family day for some of you, so maybe you're going to hear this on Monday, or maybe you take the day off and listen to it on Tuesday as you get back to your work week, whatever the case. Nothing is going to change the fact that uh, we're talking about a Vancouver Canuck loss to wrap up Sedin week, and really one of the poorest performances, I think, start to finish of the season for the hockey team that you know had done well, obviously, to climb the ranks of the Pacific Division and get to the top, but as we record this, they've been knocked from the perch, and... Uh, quite frankly, to answer, they can't afford to have many more outings like they did on Sunday afternoon against the Anaheim Ducks. No, they can't. And, you know, there were some fluky moments, I think, in terms of some calls maybe early that went against them and, and whatnot that, you know, falling behind 2 nothing to the Ducks, whatever, that's going to happen from time to time. But I sort of go back to that first six, seven minutes of the second period where you're down to you know, you're, you, you, they pressed pretty well late in the first, I thought. But you come out against the Ducks, and they were flat, and they were outshot, and they were outplayed for that seven-minute stretch. And, you know, before you know it, it's 3 nothing, and the game's done. Uh, Ducks converting on another power play opportunity, despite their usual fecklessness five on four. And, look, that just can't happen against a team like Anaheim. Uh, especially if you have playoff ambitions. And, look, they were full value for the loss. I think they richly deserved it. And, you know, despite having the puck, I thought they were wasteful with it too often. I I don't think that they generated enough prime scoring opportunities, a lot of sort of deflected point shots and on and on. I mean, they weren't taking a can opener to that Ducks defense, and and you need to do that, especially against a team you really should be better than. So, no, I thought it was – you know, probably better than the Chicago game, all told, with the exception of, you know, not having Jacob Markstrom bail them out. But uh, I think a not a concerning performance so much as a performance that, you know, I think they'll have to look at themselves in the mirror and decide as a group, uh, probably not acceptable if they're going to, you know, continue to be on pace for their goals this season. Yeah, a pretty short list, I thought, of guys that stood out. And when Zach McEwen is maybe at the top of the list, as Torch said about David Booth, good for him, mm-hmm. not so good for the hockey club. And that's not to take anything away from Zach McEwen. This is a guy that's trying to make his way as a regular in the National Hockey League. And I actually thought his performance with the puck, without the puck, again, it stood out. But I think part of that was the level of those around him was so low. Quinn Hughes is always going to stand out. Did again, had a couple of marvelous magical shifts. It was good to see Elias Pettersson load up on the one-timer. We know that teams have tried to take that away, and so I thought that part was encouraging, but you know, I think my list of things that I liked in Sunday's loss probably start and end right about there. Yeah, maybe add JT Miller. I thought JT Miller looked to be about his usual dynamic self, especially in transition, and especially with what he does you know, especially high in the zone, just holding the puck high in the zone, supporting defenders, allowing them to get involved. You, you just so often see 
defenders on the half wall, and that especially especially Quinn Hughes, but also Tyler Myers and, and Troy Stetcher. Like he lets guys activate because he's covering in a, in a certain way, and he's just so hard to get the puck off. Uh, I thought his you know, just overall transition value and his ability to win battles along the wall was there tonight. Tonight, It's just that that line didn't generate nearly enough uh, zone time, nearly enough chances, especially, you know, considering what this club has right now, which is Zach McEwen playing pretty regularly in the top six and no Brock Besser. Uh, you know, there's a variety of players who are going to need to be better than they were tonight for this team to, you know, get back to you know, rolling as opposed to reeling, which I think they are, I think it's safe to say that they've hit a bit of a, you know, divot here. They're, you know, two, four and one. Is that right? Over the their last seven. And that's the sort of stretch that can't continue or you can find yourself scraping, even though they did go into tonight's game with what an eight point cushion over the, you know, second wild card spot. So, I mean, not that it's panic time or anything, but you got to get that turned around and, and make sure that you're comfortable or as comfortable as it gets in the NHL at this time of year. And uh, performances like this one, performances like the one against Chicago, those aren't going to help. Yeah, and 2-4-1 and one in a seven-game stretch, and they've given up, I think, 24 goals in those seven games, and that includes a shutout win over the Chicago Blackhawks. So you're giving up close to three and a half per game. Uh, that's a tough way to win in today's NHL, even though offense is up slightly uh, over recent years. And I think something that is now really moving to the forefront is a penalty kill that is just in a it's in a sinkhole. I mean, it's 70% during this run. And again, when you let the worst power play in the NHL set up and do its work the way the Ducks did, um, you know, like it can't all be that Oscar Fantenberg is out of this lineup, but like something has gone wrong yeah. and badly wrong with this Canuck penalty kill. Wrong time of the year to have the penalty kill uh, go in the shitter. Yeah, no question. <laughs> Taking a dump. Um, no, the look, I mean, there's some things to do. Getting Schaller back in the lineup should help. I mean, I know that they. Surrender. But I think about that first goal. That was a marvelous play by Getzlaff. You know, full credit to him. I thought they positionally did a pretty good job on that sequence until he had that sort of European near side pass. I mean, that's just a brilliant play. And then the second one is more the one that would concern me, where there was, you know, multiple cross seam passes. Uh, that's not going to get it done. But look, getting Schaller back in the lineup should help a little bit. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't really know what other options they have other than to try and use JT Miller more. You know, I, I do think the penalty kill misses speed when Tyler Mott's out of the lineup. I think that's a pretty significant factor. And then the last thing I'd say is based on the underlying numbers, and partly these numbers reflect this because he's not the guy who's always counted on to start every penalty killing shift, which which can soar things. But Based on the underlying numbers, there is one Canucks skater who tends to generate really good four-on-five results historically, and it was not used almost ever on the penalty kill, and, and, and that's Troy Stetcher. And I know he had a tough evening against Anaheim. I'm sure he'd be the first to say that. There's no way he was happy with his performance. Uh, but, you know, if you're looking for solutions, if you're looking for a little bit more speed, if you're looking for a guy who's maybe able to add some of that disruptive element, uh, you know, Canucks play pretty passive in zone when they're on the PK, but uh, Troy Stetcher's tended to be a guy who gets decent results 
based on the underlying metrics and, and might be an option if they start to get desperate here for solutions. He'd certainly be at the top of my list of suggested ones. Yeah, unfortunate on the first goal. I mean, he goes down to try to block a cross-slot pass and it goes in off him through the legs of Thatcher yeah. Demko. It was the second one, though. They're down one nothing, not the start they're looking for. Uh, Nick Ritchie takes a run at him on the end boards and very un-Troy Stetcher-like uh, pops back up and in full conversation with the near referee as play goes up ice all the way to the bench so he didn't just have his say and and let it go he continued on the ref and eventually the ref teed him up and you know puts the team down and Stetcher wouldn't talk about what he said or his thoughts about the hit but he owned the fact that you know he put the Canucks in a hole at that point they're already down one nothing it hadn't been a great start and then the Ducks score on the power play and and really I thought one of the fascinating sequences leading up to that two-nothing goal was Edler broke his stick Schaller gives him his right. and then Tim Schaller is essentially caught in no man's land and we've seen the Canucks exploit other teams here recently mm-hmm. you know teams are so good and they're so aware now when a penalty killer is down a stick especially one of the high guys you know they try to take full advantage of that and I just I wonder and I didn't ask Schaller or, or Travis Green after the game but you know when it's not the long change like the Canucks in the first period were defending the net closest to their bench you know is a guy better to hedge his bet take the two and a half seconds it would take to get to the bench to get a stick and allow a team to operate and maybe get a chance five on three or stay out there because at one point the puck came right up the gut and Schaller didn't have a stick and there was nothing he could like if he has a stick he can clear that puck and out of harm's way but you know things happen so quickly out there and I mean, we know the percentages of, you know, give them a good look on a five on three, pretty good chance that winds up in your net as well. So I don't know what the answer is, but I just thought that was a, a vital sequence that played into the Ducks grabbing a 2 nothing lead. It, it wasn't. I was interested to note how Schaller, the way that the PK defended that, I, I think the Canucks are pretty aware of it too, right? Like it's not just opposing power plays that now exploit that. But you think about that Washington, D.C. sequence or some of the ones that we've seen the Canucks exploit. Like, they get the guy who doesn't have the stick out, and then they pass around him. And and what I thought was interesting about the Canucks when Schaller lost a stick was he basically stayed with Beagle. And they sort of just completely made their penalty kill narrow, much narrower than it is usually where, where sometimes they'll operate uh, you know, in, in a shape that looks like a diamond or the defender will come out to the flank to block shots. And all of a sudden they were basically just like an eye with, with Thatcher Demko at the base. Uh, so, look, I think penalty killers are aware of it, too. Eye formation works in football. <laughs> not so no, much on the penalty not, kill. No, not so much on the Well, I don't think they'd have done it if they if they had options. But, look, they uh, they just weren't good enough tonight. And, and look, that's going to happen. I mean, the bigger concern is the way that this team's played five on five all season, the way that they've surrendered scoring chances against shots against all season, you know, without Markstrom helping them defy gravity uh, without their first line looking, you know, sort of dominant uh, without their power play clicking, you know, things can look like they did on Sunday night at Rogers arena when all of those things were true. And especially if the PK starts to scuffle, you know, that that sort of makes the margins even narrower. And look, I think there's a couple things that would certainly help this team. One is Brock Besser getting healthy again. Uh, Another might be another body 
uh, if they can bring one in, um, you know, ahead of the trade deadline. And we'll, we'll sort of see how they operate over the next week. But they don't have a ton of games here, right? They, they play Wednesday. They play Saturday. It's Minnesota team that's in flux right that will look a lot different than the team that the Canucks saw just two weeks ago in, in Minneapolis or St. Paul excuse me and the Boston Bruins and that'll be an interesting one but I mean Canucks just can't afford to have a stretch like this become prolonged you know I think Wednesday Wednesday's game begins to take on some greater meaning especially against a team that just fired their coach and seems to me anyway to have no real plan <laughs> uh, on and on. I mean, they're going to need those two points. We are essentially a week away. By the time people hear this, mm -hmm. it'll be a week out from the trade deadline. As you mentioned, just two games. Mm -hmm. What you see is kind of what you get right now with this hockey club. Uh, we'll get into Furland in a sec, but you know, it's that time of year where I think teams really go into lockdown as far as injury updates are concerned. Not that the Canucks have been terribly forthcoming at any point of the season, but do you have any reason to believe that Brock Besser is going to be out any length of time? Like, there's just no updates whatsoever on Brock Besser right now. Well, it was on this podcast last time that I was sort of side-eyeing it as something that just seemed to me, just the way they were couching it, like, we'll tell you in two days... You know, that seemed to me to be a threat that they'd tell us nothing in, in two games. <laughs> Quite honestly, though, right? Like the way that it was positioned didn't seem to me to be a short term term absence so much as a, we'll have a better idea in a week. And so, you know, I mean, I don't like to speculate on injuries, but my guess is it's something that they're trying to see if swelling goes down or, or something like that, something they're trying to manage and sort of just check on. And that's not sort of uncommon in a variety of different joint injuries and on and on. So, uh, you know, we'll see. Like, I wouldn't be shocked, though, if Besser's absence was a little bit more extended. That said, you know, uh, based on the information the Canucks have given us, I can't read much into the tea leaves beyond just not being shocked that he's not back yet and that we don't have clarity on when he'll be back. And if we're sitting thinking that we're going to see him at a practice here at some point this week, to me that's been a fascinating part of the last seven days is how little this team has practiced. And again, we record this after the loss to Anaheim and then learn that Monday is another full team day off. They just came off two days off ice. Uh, Thursday was a full day off. Friday they had the big charity function, Dice and Ice, and they had a, a dry land workout here at the rink. But... Like this is a team that has some things to work on right now, <laughs> yeah. and they're choosing to allow these guys time off to rest and recover. But I'm a little surprised, frankly, that they haven't opted for a few more practices here along the way. I know we're talking about practice, but yeah. no, uh, I'm, I'm surprised they're not practicing tomorrow after a five-one defeat in which they didn't play that well. Like that's sort of the one. To this point, I haven't been surprised. I've just been pleasantly surprised. Like, oh, thank goodness. You know, I get a day off. But or not, And I don't ever take a day off, but I get a day to sit at my desk and just write, right? No obligation to come down and take photos of the ice with line rushes or whatever, right? Uh, so I'm, I'm not stunned. I, I think that, you know, you're at a time in the year where guys are banged up and more banged up than we realize, right? And more banged up than they're willing to talk about, obviously. And... So I think having those extra days makes a ton of sense to me. I mean, I think it helps guys stay fresh. I think it helps guys, you know, 
even if say you have two high profile players, right? Obviously Pedersen's been out of the lineup within the last two weeks. Um, just as an example, right? Say he needs the day off, but they give him a maintenance day or they say they'd have practiced, but given him two maintenance days, what happens to the level of attention their star player gets, for example, right? And on and on. And he's probably not the only guy. And, and I'm not even saying that that's part of the reason, I, just sort of as a knockoff effect. The fact of the matter is, is you can disguise a variety of things and give guys more time to rest up and heal when you're avoiding practice. I'm not stunned at all that they're practicing this rare or this rarely at the moment. Uh, but I do think that if they don't get things sorted, that trend will stop and change. Right, because it's not an issue when you're winning. Everything's great. You're mm -hmm. rewarding them. But all of a sudden, when the losses start to, I don't want to say mount, but again, 2-4-1 and one in the last seven, that's not going to get it done. So, as we've seen, there are certainly some things to work on. One guy who uh, hasn't practiced, I mean, I guess he did get out on the ice with the Canucks briefly there before he went down to Utica. But we got to get into this because it all kind of ties in to the next deadline seven days, the yeah. deadline. Uh, I mean, just worst case scenario for Michael Furlan. Like, I think we all just wanted this guy to uh, be healthy and see where it went from there. But to not even be able to get out of the first period of his first game in a couple of months down in Utica on Friday night, uh, I mean, my... my heart goes out to the guy my stomach churned when I heard that news because we'd seen him skate here at Rogers Arena and he got through a couple of these practices unscathed and it had been as I mentioned a couple of months and you hoped that that was going to be enough time for him to be right uh, and to be well enough to play but where it goes from here I don't think anybody knows. Concussions are horrifying and unpredictable and extraordinarily difficult to treat and to predict and to gauge and to game plan for and those are all things that an nhl team does in regards to it you know with the way that concussion protocol works and how a guy graduates through it you get to a stage where eventually you have to go into a game that's your next step and now on two instances over the past few months michael furlan's reached that step and and had a setback and you know I think you're right, just in terms of the humanity of it and, and how terrible it, you know, it must be for him. You know, I don't even know if he's in Utica or Vancouver, right? And the, so yeah, you just hope that he gets better. And then from the Canucks perspective, and, and not to be too ghoulish about it, but, you know, presumably, you know, they'll have some tough decisions to make here in the very near future. He's been on LTI. He remains on LTI. It means the Canucks can exceed the cap. Uh, you know, exceed the cap to the amount of his sort of contract, but in, in the event that they want the flexibility to add a body uh, on a on a decent salary, say a, say a Wayne Simmons type, um, you know, they'd they'd need to place Mott, Levo, and um, Grayevac on LTI, join him up, and that would give them you know three three point two million roughly to play with uh, because they're only seven hundred k below the upper limit right now with Furland on LTI, so. Look, things are going to get tight, and every injury, every bump, every bruise, right, every guy's recovery has to be monitored so closely because it's not just that you're putting a guy on LTI and then you have space. You also have to get that guy back on the roster, and the NHL doesn't accept, oh, well, we'll just take him off LTI once we get to the playoffs. Like, that's not how it works, right? Uh, the, you have to, uh, Who, whose voice was that, by the way? Oh, that was just like Joe Hockey Ops calling calling Central Registry to be like, oh yeah, <laughs> um, no the uh, <laughs> Joe Hockey Ops, <laughs> he does the paperwork. 
um, no. So look, I think there's a variety of things that the Canucks will have to work through here that, you know, are going to be complicated and, and going to limit their options and, and the unpredictability of Furlan's situation and, uh, you know, just the humanity of it, just the hope that he is able to get back to playing or at least being able to do strenuous activity without, you know, having some kind of setback or concussion symptoms. Uh, you know, that's that's sort of all you can hope for at this point. Yeah, I mean, I, I tweeted this out the other night when I heard that news. Like, that's three of the last four games that he has dressed for that he hasn't been able to finish. The Los Angeles game, he played the whole game against Buffalo, I think it was, and then got injured against Toronto, and we hadn't seen him in-game action until the other night in the American Hockey League, and he didn't get it through, through a first period. I mean, I think there are a lot of people that think just, you know, the organization should step in and just shut him down for this year at the very least. And, you know, they... they I tried to ask Travis Green on Saturday once we heard the news, you know, if the hockey club just flat out has to now move forward without him, uh, you know, that line of thinking. And Travis Green wasn't prepared to write him off entirely. But, I mean, I do think it changes the conversation. And already we had heard rumblings about the Canucks kicking tires on Wayne Simmons. Uh, A week to go here, we're starting to see the wheels of trade sort of lubricated around the National Hockey League, maybe a fire sale underway in New Jersey. Canucks played a minor role in yeah. all of that. Now now we have to watch the Devils at the draft table instead of the Tampa Lightning with that first rounder that was given up for J.T. Miller. So, uh, yeah, I mean, they've kind of been involved in, uh, at an arm's length in the trades here. Uh, but what do you think? I mean, uh, do you anticipate that the Devils uh, doing the things they did on Sunday afternoon, does that – spark an interest around the league or is that just them getting ahead of the the curve well I think they got good offers and I think they took them I I mean I think they did really well today when you consider Andy Green and you know two years of Blake Coleman and that's on two years of a a player who's performed very well right high-end level Uh, one of those guys who's on pace for a bona fide NHL power forward season that I that I like to sort of track and point out right and to get him at 1.8 this year and next, especially for a team like Tampa Bay, who's got Cernak up, <laughs> Sergeyev up, and Sorelli up, right? That's a guy who a lot of people around the league, Sorelli, they think of him as a potential top-line matchup centerman. Like, they think of him as being a peer for Bo Horvat. So he's going to be not inexpensive on a second contract. And then both Cernak and Sergeyev are, like, really good top-four quality defensemen. So they have those pieces to sign with all the money they already have committed. So there's going to be another round of roster surgery, another round of them doing deals like the JT Miller trade that Vancouver benefited from, and having a guy like Coleman who you're like, okay, well, he can play on our second line, and he's at 1.8. I mean, that helps. That's That firms up their window this year and next. And, and I'm curious to know, do you view the Miller trade differently as a result of today's otherwise unrelated to the Canucks transaction? Uh, I'm not sure that I've given that any thought mm-hmm. now that you mentioned that. Um, you know, just focused on the game and all the post-game work, I really hadn't given what went right. down around them a whole lot of thought. Um, in what sense does it change the view? Just that it is a final accounting of Tampa Bay's side of the trade now. We know now that Tampa Bay's 
not getting X guy with the 17th overall pick and he's going to become something like it, re it reduces the risk of the Brent Sopel for a second round pick that becomes Wayne Simmons, you know, deal in life to just to bring this full circle and back to Wayne Simmons at the deadline. No, my, my initial thought when I see a team like Jersey pedal, you know, a 37 year old veteran defenseman to get a second rounder. And I know, yeah. I know Lou paid that price because he's familiar with the player and sure. brought him into the league and all that kind of stuff. But, but that's it, arbitrage, right? Like that's, that's like definition of arbitrage. Like Lou probably values that player more than anyone else. So that's what the devils were able to, and Lou's probably coming away from it being like, Oh, Andy green. Great. Like veteran playoff hardened guy for a second. Let's go. And, and I've got, blue line injuries I need to fill like this is my this is my pellic so you know right it takes me back a bunch of years though and I just think like you know that should have been Dan Hamhuis that should have been Radom Verbata by this hockey club and they could have had you know reap the rewards now for those deals that never happened so yeah. when I see veteran guys towards the end of their career on the move like that <laughs> I just think oh what might have been yeah you're shell-shocked almost right <laughs> Well, look, I think the uh, I think real quick when you deal when you're a team like Tampa pressed up against the cap, you know, it's not as simple as they gave up J.T. Miller and then paid more than that for Coleman. It's that J.T. Miller represented 20 million in cap liabilities to them, uh, 24 million or 22 million, excuse me. And they were able to net an asset for that that allowed them to find a piece that better fit into their cap structure. And in the meantime, uh, used part of that cap space to uh, re-sign Braden Point, who's providing an extraordinarily extraordinary level of surplus value on his current bridge deal, and also got a third-round pick for their trouble. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just more complicated than, oh well, Canucks won the trade now that Tampa's traded that pick for a player who's not as good as Miller, right? It's like they couldn't afford J.T. Miller. They've instead managed to do a bunch of other things. Um, that have them in place to, you know, like Blake Coleman just came in and he replaces Verhage, like in in their top nine, and now that team, that's a hat trick Verhage, Verhage to you, right? Yes, we saw we we did see Verhage have a hat trick this year, which is nuts. But nonetheless, you know, he replaces Verhage in the top nine that Tampa Bay has, and now I challenge you to go look at their roster and point out a flaw to me. I mean, they do not have one. They're going to be fascinating to watch come playoff time based on what went down last year like they've got so much unfinished business they know it and it kind of feels like the end of the Alan Vigno era here that if it goes sideways on them again in the playoffs then you know you're bound to see some casualties I think because it's just it's hard to sell that to the fan base that this group that has just been lights out you know, two regular seasons in a row. I mean, the Canucks lived that, and it didn't end well for a number of people. Uh, and I just I, there feels like some real similarities there. So I'm, I'm fascinated to see. There's nothing they can do in the regular season that you know is going to uh, ultimately sway anybody's judgment. It's all about what happens come playoff time. And I mean, as I say, I think they're on their second 10-game win streak of this regular season. And we saw them when the Canucks and Tampa were both on seven game win streak so we know how that one went down and the Bolts still have to come through Vancouver so Canuck fans are going to get a chance to see them you know for themselves with their own two eyes and uh, you know you, you it's look something yeah it's something no when they got going there in that second oh. period where they just pulled away from the Canucks and, and there was no stopping them I, you know that I guess as we kind of bring it full circle here is you know the disappointment I think for all the Canucks 
losing to an Anaheim team that they're now winless in two against. They see them two more times. Like most teams are taking points off the Anaheim Ducks. Ducks aren't going to lose every game the rest of the season. But the Vancouver Canucks had an opportunity here. They had gone two for two in Sedin week. There was another terrific pregame ceremony. Wasn't clearly the, the Sunday afternoon. It felt like an afternoon game for much of this one. There wasn't the emotion and the energy that had been here in previous games. But, you know, you, you can't whiff on opportunities against some of these bottom feeders when you think of what is still ahead for the Canucks. You mentioned Boston at the tail end of this homestand. Tampa has to come through here. Columbus, Colorado, Vegas. Like there are, there's some meat on the schedule here. And that's why, again, I, I didn't expect Anaheim to roll over and they certainly didn't, but you know, the Canucks can't allow the Anaheim Ducks to derail their season, and they're 0 for 2 so far with two games still to come head to head. Well, and sorry, I just noticed while watching the monitor, which has Sportsnet on it, right? The. Um, I'm, not I'm not familiar with that never network. Heard, never heard of Sportsnet? Me neither. Uh, the, but I noticed that the. Nashville Predators won on Sunday. And, they swept St. Louis this weekend. Right. And the Canucks lost. So what I was talking about with an eight-point gap, which it was when I checked this morning, right? But no, two, two, four, and one will do that to you. Right. It's four now, right? So, I mean, that's just how quickly life changes in this crazy league and down the stretch and, and why while the Canucks have put themselves in a very good position, it's not over. Like, there's a lot of road to run and unfortunately this team's played and I've said this a few times this team's played at a level five on five to leave some doubt and they're going to need to find a way to be five percent better five on five if they're going to make the playoffs than they have been to this point and certainly than they have been over stretches that really extend through about mid-November. Sedin week is over what are you going to do now? I guess I have to talk to players again. <laughs> I have to write about the team that's actually still on the ice. Um, we'll see how that goes. No, no, look, uh, Sedin Week was super fun. And, uh, you know, I wrote, or if you read the Armies, I, I spent the pregame ceremony on Sunday with the Letcher family. Uh, the Letcher family had uh, one, one son in a wheelchair pushed by his two twin brothers uh, who are five years old. Um, and, you know, this was a situation where they're not sure when or if their whole family, well, in fact, they're pretty confident their whole family won't get another chance to come to a hockey game again, but they've built a personal relationship with the twins and just talking to them, experiencing that ceremony with the parents who were filming every moment and, and really just trying to enjoy the present, you know, with a higher level of doubt than what we all live with, because of course, tomorrow is promised to nobody, but you know, there's, they certainly have an understanding that the end is nigh for you know, someone dear to them and, and in their family and the ability for them to participate on the ice. And they were positioned between the benches. And I saw Antoine Roussel sort of led a pack, but almost every Canuck player came and said hi to the kids beforehand and the parents that clearly meant a ton to them. Um, and then just hearing them talk about Canuck Place, how important that's been for their family, how much comfort they draw from the familiarity they have with that staff and about some of their experiences with Henrik and Daniel uh, moved me a lot and uh, and sort of summarized for me why this week meant so much, I think, to Vancouverites and to Canucks fans because, you know, Henrik and Daniel, they are 
great people and they're also among the greatest athletes to ever represent this city but i think it's important to remember that that's there that it's in that order and uh, and i think this week really drove that home yeah and against the backdrop of this being family day weekend too um you know good on you and good on the canucks for incorporating those types of families and children um as part of the pregame ceremony and and you know i mean it it was a a touching pregame ceremony that is such a big part of who daniel and henrik were as well like the on ice stuff was recognized on wednesday and you know i think the city is still basking in the glow of that ceremony and all that went down but uh, you know that's sort of the end of their hockey career but their effect in the community and the charitable work and the donations and everything else will continue to benefit a lot of people for a long long time so uh, an unfortunate end. They couldn't complete the sweep of Sedine Week, but uh, they got to pick themselves up, dust themselves off, and uh, get back at it. Uh, maybe a practice somewhere along. Maybe a practice somewhere along the line. Who knows? And uh, they will play Minnesota on Wednesday night. By the way, uh, do you have Joe from Hockey Ops? Is he in your? Con- could, you think we could ever get him on the podcast <laughs> as a guest? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if he'll be more forthcoming than Travis Green. <laughs> I would say just about anybody. <laughs> yeah, Travis didn't have a whole lot to say post-game, but you could just tell body language and uh, some short answers that uh, he wasn't thrilled with what happened here against the Anaheim Ducks. So, uh, again, 2-4-1, and one, not going to get it done, but uh, they've been a terrific team on home ice. They've been pretty good about bouncing back from the subpar performances that they've put forth, but they do have to get this thing moving back in the right direction. So that's going to do it for another VanCast for us. So we'll record later in the week as uh, trade deadline approaches. And we make this pledge that in the event of any sort of deal of significance going down yep. involving the Vancouver Canucks, so we will file, we'll fire up the podcaster and uh, invoke the emergency podcast. Nice. I'm looking forward to that. I hope we get to do it, obviously, because A, it's more fun to talk about uh, when a team makes a trade, and B, um, because I've never got to do an emergency podcast before. That'll be a first for me, Jeff. I'm, I'm pumped. Let's do it. Well, that's up to Jim and John and, and the crew, so I'm there with you. I'm ready. We're ready to spring into action, but we need the material first. Well, and I don't think Jim and John are listeners, but Travis... <laughs> I'm sure you've already done it because all coaches want additions at this time. They're, show me a coach, like the shortest, the two shortest pamphlets in the NHL, players that like their coach and coaches that are happy with their team at the deadline, right? <laughs> they all need an extra horse or two. So Travis, just tell Jim and John, emergency pod episode for, for your listening pleasure if you guys make a move. Make it happen. For Drancer, <laughs> it's J-Pat. As always, thanks so much for listening to the VanCast here at The Athletic and theathletic.com. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I forgot one, one other thing before we go. Make sure you rate and subscribe to the VanCast on Apple. If you click on the show URL, theathletic.com slash thevancast, you can get 40% off your subscription. So you can't go wrong with that. Again, make sure you rate and subscribe to the VanCast on Apple. Now, for Drancer, it's J-Pat. Again, thanks so much for listening to the VanCast here on The Athletic and theathletic.com.